We're learning the famous story of David and Goliath, story in chapter 17 in Shmuel 1. And we saw that Goliath is taunting and cursing the armies of Israel and nobody steps up to challenge him. All this takes place in the area of Beit Shemesh with the Philistine army facing off against the Jewish army. And then the narrative switched the scene to Bethlehem, to Beit Lechem. That's the home of David and his family. We met his father, Jesse, Yishai. It said that he had eight sons, three of which are high-ranking officers serving in Saul's army. David, we learned, he's going back and forth from Bethlehem to the king's palace in order to play for Saul. And this brings us to verse 17. That's where we left off. It says in verse 17, And Yishai said to his son David, Please take for your brothers some roasted corn and take these 10 loaves of bread and you rush to your brother's camp. And then in verse 18, we see Yishai asks him to take some more stuff and also take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. Okay, so this is a typical Jewish parent of a soldier in the IDF making sure his sons and the commanders of his sons and all their friends that they have something to eat. That's typical. And see how they're all doing. And then Yishai adds something else in the verse that he wants David to bring. It's something a little more vague. He says like this, the arubatam tikach, and take their aruva, arubatam tikach. Now the English translation of this verse is going to vary from Bible to Bible because it's a weird word. Well, the root of the word is arev, ayin resh bet. Arev is a guarantor. If you're an arev somebody on their mortgage, you're a guarantor for them. So if you go by that, then the translation may be, bring back some assurances for them. Now, Arev has other meanings besides guarantor. The Talmud explains that Arubatam comes from the word La'arbev, to mix or to connect. La'arev something is to mix it or to mingle it with something. And so the Talmud says that this word has something to do with the connection with a man and his wife. So what we're talking about here, according to the Talmud, is he's telling David to bring a get a divorce paper. Why? Because it was customary for soldiers to divorce their wives upon leaving for war so that the wives can remarry if their husbands fall in the war and they can't be identified or recognized later on, especially wars in those days were so brutal. You couldn't recover the bodies. You couldn't identify the bodies and you don't want to have a situation of agunot, women who can't remarry. So arubatam here means a get Yishai told David to bring his brother's divorce papers. And this interpretation of Arubatam, it becomes a key later on in the Bathsheba episode, because when David takes Bathsheba, the sages say that she wasn't married to Uriah, her husband, at that time, since he gave her a get. He gave her a divorce before he went out to that war. And that, according to the Talmud, becomes the excuse why David did not fall into the sin of Eshedish, that he did not commit adultery with Bathsheba, since Bathsheba was officially no longer married. And this is all derived from this term here, Tikach Arubatam, take this divorce paper, take this get, because in those days, the men would have to divorce their wives before going out to war. Now, just one more perush on Arubatam, and this is something kind of deep. We said that Arubatam comes from the root Arev, which means a guarantor. And if you remember in Genesis, in the story of Joseph and his brothers, when Yehuda says to Yaakov, his father, that he will be an Arev for Benjamin, that he'll be a guarantor for Benjamin. That is, if the king of Egypt, which happened to be Yosef, their brother, they didn't know it. If he takes Benjamin, I will go in his place. I'll go instead of him. I'm a guarantor for him and Arev. Just like when someone can't pay his mortgage and the Arev, the guarantor, has to 
pay in his place. Yehuda was saying here to his father Yaakov, I will be an Arif for Binyamin and a guarantor for him. And that's what happened. When the king of Egypt, who happened to be Yosef, and they didn't know it, when he took Binyamin, we see that Yehuda protects him. So what's the connection here? Well, here too, David, from the tribe of Yehuda, is saving Binyamin once again. Saul, after all, is from the tribe of Binyamin. And David is being his Arev. He's going out to challenge Goliath and release Saul from all this pressure. Because if you recall, when Goliath said, choose for yourself a man to fight me, the shout was he's talking about Saul. So this whole ordeal put a lot of pressure on Saul and David's coming to the rescue. And that's the drusha of what Yishai is telling to David to take their Aruba, Aruba Tamtikach. Verse 19, which now takes us back to the battlefront. And Saul and the men of Israel were in the Yellow Valley. They're getting ready for war against the Philistines. Verse 20, And David got up early in the morning. He left the sheep with the Shomer. And that's the big responsibility of a shepherd. He's married to his flock. If he wants to leave, he's got to make sure he's got somebody to take his place. So David left the sheep with somebody else. And he loaded up all that food that Yishai gave him. And he went off. As Jesse had commanded him. So you can see the Kibbut Av in the verse, how David respects his father. He obediently follows the instructions of his father. And as he reached the army camp, and they shouted the war cry, which is probably a trumpet or a horn that they're sounding off. And that's what the Torah says happens when you go out to war. As it says in Bamidbar, verse 10, it says, when you fight a war in your land against the enemy, you blow the horn. So that's very similar to the wording we have here. Now in our situation here, we're not talking about an actual war yet. But both sides are provoking one another. They've been facing off for 40 days. Things are heating up. The tension is mounting. And that's what the next verse says in verse 21. And the Philistines and Israel armies were in array. Army versus army. Facing one another. Okay, so what's David going to do? Verse 22. And David left all his stuff. That is all the food that his father gave him. All the bisli and the bamba. He left it, he left it with the person who's in charge of the supplies, and he ran to the battlefield. And when he got to the battlefield, he greeted his brothers and asked how they're doing. So at the beginning, David arrived at the Ma'agala, that was the army camp. Now he runs to the Ma'aracha, that means he ran to the battlefield, and there he greeted his brothers. Next verse, verse 23. And while he was talking to his brothers, totally unsuspecting that something's going to happen, and behold, that Ish Benayim came up, Goliath the Philistine, Migat, he was from Gat, from the ranks of the Philistines, and he spoke like he had previously. That is, he yelled his usual curses and blasphemy. And notice again, Goliath is called Isha Benayim. We studied that word at the beginning of the chapter. Benayim from the word in between. He went in between the camps. Another possibility, Benayim from the word Binyan. He was a building of a man. That's Isha Benayim. Usually in English, it's translated as, as the Philistine Gibor or champion. In any case, Goliath is doing his thing, taunting and cursing. And David hears it for the first time. And that's why the verse closes, Vayishma David, and David heard it. 
And like we said earlier, Vayishma, it's not just a technical, physical listening, but it means he grasped what was happening. Vayishma David. He understood what Goliath was doing. Now, before we continue, and I know we're in the middle of the action and the drama, but there's something we have to pay attention to. In verse 23, we have a change in the Hebrew word for armies or ranks. The usual word we've been using for armies or ranks is ma'archot, like Goliath cursed ma'archot Yisrael, the armies of Israel. And Goliath was from the ma'archot Philistim. Goliath was from the Philistine ranks. And then here in verse 23, we have another word. Instead of ma'archot plishtim, it says that Goliath was mima'arot plishtim. Not ma'archot, but ma'arot, with an ayin in the middle. Now, for sure, the English translation will be the same. It's going to say in English, encampment or camp or armies of the Philistines. But you know there has to be some powerful midrash coming if the Bible text changes the word. What is ma'arot instead of ma'archot? Ma'arot, well, it comes from the same root as arayot, which is the word for sexual immorality. It's also very close to the word orlot, which are foreskins. So where are we going with all this? Foreskins, sexual immorality. What does this have to do with Goliath? And this is what it says in the Talmud in Sota 42. All on this word, me'arot. A hundred foreskins or a hundred men were intimate with Goliath's mother, Orpah, after she parted from her mother-in-law, Naomi. Okay, let's get this straight. Remember the book of Ruth, where Ruth and Orpah were the daughters-in-law of Naomi? Well, Orpah eventually became the mother of Goliath. And if you go to Shmuel Bet, chapter 21, verse 16, there are four giants mentioned. One of them is Goliath. And it says they're the children of Orpah. Now, how did this happen? Well, we know in the book of Ruth that Ruth stayed with Nomi and Orpah, she left Nomi. And the story then focused on Ruth and Nomi. They left Moab. They came to Israel, etc. But what happened to Orpah? Well, when she left Nomi, she returned to her Moabite roots, to her people and gods, and she went back to their low moral standards. And on that very night that she left Naomi, the Talmud says, she was intimate with a hundred Philistines and a dog. And that is how Goliath was conceived. That's what the Talmud says. And what's scary about it is that in the book of Ruth, Orpah was a pretty faithful daughter-in-law to Naomi. She was pretty attached to her. We saw that she cried when she left Naomi. It wasn't so easy for her to do. I mean, she almost converted just like Ruth did, but she didn't go the distance. And look how fast she sank. From almost being a righteous Jewess like Ruth, she sank from those lofty heights to sexual decadence. And that's scary. It's like there's no in-between. And I once heard a whole shiur on this subject by the great Zechariah Wallerstein of Blessed Memory explaining how Orpah fell and how this can happen to somebody who really wasn't a bad person at the beginning but fell off the cliff real fast. But the crazy thing that comes out of this is this. Ruth and Orpah, they were two sisters who were married to the two sons of Naomi and Elimelech. So if that's so, that makes David and Goliath cousins. Yes, David is a descendant of Ruth. Goliath is a descendant of Orpah, and they're going to go at it. So we see that each one, Ruth and Orpah, each one implemented her free choice. Ruth chose to cling to Nomi and Judaism. Orpah chose not to. And now the Almighty is throwing their descendants against one another. And that's to teach us how critical it is to make the right choices. It's the difference between David and Goliath. Okay, let's get back to the battlefield. Goliath has come up from the ranks of the Philistines, speaking the words he did before. And David heard him. And when all the men of Israel saw this man, 
and they fled from him. And they were terrified. Verse 25, And the men of Israel said, Did you see that guy who was coming up? He's just doing all this to taunt Israel. And whoever kills him, the king will give him great wealth. And he'll also give him his daughter in marriage. And he will make his father's house free in Israel, meaning he will exempt his family from paying taxes to the king. So now we get some new information. King Saul has been offering an incentive to anyone who will take out Goliath. That's something we didn't opt to now. This thing's been going on for 40 days. And the king of Israel is trying to get somebody to step up. Okay, so David hears all this. And now we see David's reaction in verse 26. And David said to the men who were standing before him, What will be done for the man who slays this Philistine? And who removes this disgrace from Israel? What's he going to get for it? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Now this is a key verse and there's a lot in it. Most importantly here, we get David's gut reaction to this whole situation. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? That he should taunt the armies of the living God. Now pay attention, when Goliath came out, it said he taunted the armies of Israel. David changes it and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that should taunt the armies of the living God? David understands, if you taunt the armies of Israel, you're taunting the God of Israel. And that's one of the keys to this entire story. David realizes this is a chilul Hashem, a desecration of God's name. And in such a situation, action has to be taken. The Jews are a chosen people. They're God's people. And when you mock them, you're mocking God. Because God is reflected through his people. That's what being a chosen people means. And all the more so, if you mock the collective, if you mock the armies of Israel, you're saying that the God of Israel doesn't have the power to save you. That is impotent. That's what we said earlier, that he came to Levatel Kriyat Shema. He came to cancel out Shema Yisrael, to cancel out the significance of it, that God is omnipotent, that God is Kol Yachol. If that was true, why are you all terrified of me? And this is what David understands immediately. And so he interprets Goliath's words saying, who is he that he should taunt the armies of the living God? You desecrate the Jewish army, you're desecrating God. Now, besides the fact that David is made from different stuff and we see he reacts totally different from everybody else, there's another factor at play here. David, he's new to all this. He comes fresh on the scene while everybody else got used to the situation. You can get used to anything, even Chilul Hashem. After a while, you become insensitive to it. The first time, it bothers you. After a while, it becomes part of the routine. Like in Israel, we get used to Arabs throwing rocks at us. David, on the other hand, he comes upon the scene fresh. He wasn't used to the Chilul Hashem. It was shocking for him. Everybody else was taking it in stride. And that's just the nature of the beast. You can get used to anything. I remember when I first came to Israel and I saw on the buses all these signs, you have to worry about suspicious objects, about bombs. Buses were being checked at the airport. If there were bombs in the garbage cans or under the seats. And I'm saying to myself, why does Israel put up with this? Why don't we just expel the enemy from Israel already? I wasn't used to it. The Israelis on the bus have been going through this routine their whole lives. And you know, this whole concept of not getting used to a certain reality, it reminds me of the famous story of Chushim ben Dan, Chushim the son of Dan. Who's Chushim ben Dan? He's the one who killed Esav. 
What's the story behind it? Well, when it was time to bury Yaakov Avinu, the sons of Jacob brought their father Yaakov to the Barat HaMachpelah in Hebron, and they were about to bury him, and along comes Esav, the older brother of Yaakov, and he makes the following claim. He says that the final burial site in the Barat HaMachpelah belongs to him. That burial site's reserved for me. You can't bury your father there. It's true I sold the Bechora. It's true I lost the blessings, but I never sold my burial site. And so you can't bury your father there. Now the brothers knew this wasn't true. And they told Esav, listen, there's a star, there's a document, a contract in Egypt, which proves that our father Yaakov bought from you the burial site in the Maratha Machpelah. And Esav says, well, let me see the document. So they sent Naphtali, the fastest brother, they sent them off to Egypt to go fetch the contract. And so what was happening here is that Esav was delaying the burial of Yaakov Avinu. And while they're waiting for Naphtali to return, amongst the brothers was Chushim ben Dan, Chushim the son of Dan. Dan, of course, is one of the tribes. He's one of the sons of Yaakov. And he had a son named Chushim. And Chushim was deaf. He couldn't hear anything. Maybe that's why he was called Chushim. Chushim means senses, like the five senses. Maybe because he was deaf, his other senses were keener. And Chushim ben Dan didn't know what was going on, didn't hear anything. He asked the brothers, the sons of Yaakov, What's going on? And they told him that Asaf is claiming that the burial plot belongs to him. And in the meantime, we're waiting for Naphtali to bring the proof. And Chushim ben Dan became enraged and said, and in the meantime, Grandpa Yaakov is going to lay here, but Bizayon in disgrace. And he went over to Asaf and he killed him. And that's how Asaf died. He died in the Maratha Machpelah at the hand of Chushim, the son of Dan. And this is an Agarata. It appears in a couple of places in Sota. It's in Midrash Rabbah. And on this story, Binyamin Khan would ask, how was it that out of all the people standing there, it was Chushim ben Dan who took out Esav. I mean, where was Yehuda? He's a Gibor. Where was Shimon and Levi? They're the zealots. Why didn't they strike down Esav? Obviously, Esav was doing this out of spite. He was doing it dafka. Why of all people was it Chushim ben Dan, their nephew, who was the one to rise up here? Well, the rest of the brothers, they got used to a given situation. Esav comes with a claim. Sounds reasonable. And the brothers counter that claim. And even if they know that Esav is doing this intentionally, they figure, well, we could settle this without violence. We send Naphtali, we'll bring back the proof, and we'll settle the thing peacefully. And that's what happens sometimes when you enter into a negotiation process. Something that might have first seemed to you as outlandish and ridiculous, it starts to become reasonable. After all, he has his side, we have our side, and you get desensitized to what's really going on. But Chushim, the son of Dan, being deaf, he never got used to the situation. And that's a good thing. He didn't hear the claims of Esau. He didn't hear the claims of the brothers. He just saw one thing, that Saba Jacob is laying here but Bizayon. It's a desecration not to bury Yaakov as fast as possible. And so hearing it for the first time, what's really going on, he acted instinctively. He saw the situation truly for what it was. And so we see that sometimes acting by instinct and not overthinking it, sometimes that gut reaction is the correct one. Okay, let's get back to our verse, verse 26. Like we mentioned, it's epic. David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the ranks of the living God? But there's something peculiar about the verse because that's the second part of the verse. The first part of the verse, it says that David went over to the people and said to them, what shall be done to the man that slays the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Why is it that at the beginning of the verse, David is asking about the reward? He heard in the last verse that the king will enrich him, he'll give him his daughter, he'll give him kavod. Why is David repeating that here in this verse? 
it really doesn't belong here because David's talking about Chilul Hashem, removing this disgrace. Why does he talk in the beginning, though, about the reward that the slayer of Goliath is going to get? Rabbi Kahana, I think, has a really good answer to this. He says that David wasn't thinking about himself going out and fighting Goliath at this point. He's trying to get somebody else to do it. He's trying to persuade them. So he's saying, what's the reward you get for slaying the Philistine? Hoping that by repeating the incentive, somebody will step up. So he's trying to pump them up. He's trying to incite them. And he's going to get attacked for that by his brother Eliav soon for doing so. But the point is that David, at this point, he's new on the scene. And he's not presumptuous enough to think that he's the guy who's going to go out and do it. But he wants somebody to do it. He's not even serving in the army. So he mentions the reward. And then he gets to the tachlis, the real reason you got to take out Goliath because he's taunting the armies of the living God. So we see David's reaction. We see where he's coming from. Unfortunately, his older brother Eliav looks at him as like a young whippersnapper who doesn't know what he's talking about. We'll see the reaction of his brother Eliav to all this in our next year. 